Hello everyone and welcome to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. We really appreciate you listening to our sponsors' ads. This podcast would not exist without their, and of course, your support. This week's podcast is brought to you by Yamaha Motorcycles, filling the gap between the entry-level R3 and the flagship Superbike R1. Yamaha's YZF-R7 is a brilliant supersport machine that provides real performance, perfectly balanced with rider comfort. Check it out at yamahamotorsports.com, or of course you can see it for yourself at your local Yamaha dealer. This podcast is also brought to you by the new state-of-the-art Shoeberth C5 flip-up helmet. The modular C5's design blends safety with amazing quietness within its compact, lightweight design. Visit Shoeberth.com for more information. This week, editor Don Williams tells us all about the new Indian Pursuit. This high-performance full dresser features Indian's powerful liquid-cooled V-twin engine that spools up quickly and smoothly. If you're a performance rider who likes full dresser luxury, then you're probably going to want to hear what Don has to say about the new Pursuit. In the second segment, associate editor and podcast producer TJ Adams chats to Lauren Turnbull, She's actually one of the moderators at the respected East Coast Female Riders Group in Australia. You can find it on Facebook. She's just started her own digital motorcycle magazine for ladies called Girl Moto Media. Lauren chats with TJ about her experience riding in Thailand's northwest corner. The famed Mei Hong Son Loop is an unbelievably spectacular ride through mist-covered mountain passes and steamy jungles. Lauren and her partner rented a couple of Yamahas and rode the nearly 2,000 corners that make up the almost 400-mile-long four-day ride. Sounds unbelievable. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, I had some good times uh, riding the new 2022 Indian Pursuit. It's their modern almost a sport tour cruiser full dresser motorcycle uh, it's, it's not strictly a new model basically it's the indian challenger with a top box making it a bit more of a you know full service touring bike and for india it's good to understand kind of the difference in the models that they have or the different lines the indian roadmaster line is based on the air-cooled uh push rod v-twin that they motor that they have which is great and it's kind of the legacy looking bike it looks like an older you know not quite vintage but an old, older style motorcycle more classic look uh, again it's uh, air cold it doesn't have and so it doesn't have the look of a v-twin that has liquid cooling which is what the pursuit has the pursuit has a longer stroke motor uh, overhead cam so it's uh, it's the modern take on the classic cruiser and beyond that they also it also has more sporting chassis which makes sense is it better suits the uh the engine that comes with it and riding the pursuit is actually pretty fun i enjoy the challenger when i rode that and uh this is pretty much more of the same the top box being on there even though i threw some stuff in there you don't really notice it once you get going because it's you know it's a it's a full size big motorcycle but it's 108 cubic inches not as big as some but again 
we're looking at overhead cam motor with uh, liquid cooling. So there's you know much more technology there, and uh, it has the frame mounted fairing. So it's kind of that uh, road glide ultra kind of competitor, and it's uh, actually a super fun bike. I said super fun bike to ride. Let's say you're a performance rider and you're saying, you know, I like to get in that touring thing. You're not really looking for something like Kawasaki Concours, which is still pretty much a sport bike. You want to be relaxed. You want floorboards. You want the wide bars that come back to you. You want the big comfortable seat. You want to be able to go across the country with good air protection. You want things like cruise control. So you say, okay, I'm going to get a cruiser. Now you could get uh, one of the Indian Roadmasters, but that may not satisfy that sporting bit that you have in you. And the Pursuit will do that. Uh, it's a motor that revs up more and it just, it hauls. And not only does the motor spin up nicely, it also, uh, it has the chassis to go with it. Uh, if you like to do hundred mile per hour uh, sweepers, bike is absolutely completely solid. Now, of course, you can't ride it like a sport bike. It's still uh, a sizable motorcycle, no doubt about it. And, and uh, you know, you can't go jamming into corners and expect to turn the 882-pound uh, motorcycle on a dime because it, it's not going to do that. Sure. But uh, if you plan ahead, if you think about what you're doing, you can go really fast on that motorcycle. But even in a relaxed way, you know, you're sitting there, you're in that ergonomic zone where you're just kicking back I mean, you're not your feet aren't excessively far forward but they're you know far enough forward that you're relaxed you got that seat supporting you uh and then you've got the bars you got the fairing with an adjustable windshield which is nice and uh you can you can go and you in a straight line when you want to make some time when you're in a place where there don't seem to be any police around and so i guess there's no rules you can go as fast as you know as fast as you want and getting triple hitting triple digits on that speedometer is not hard uh if you're willing to twist the throttle it will go up there at the same time it doesn't have to be that way the bike is docile enough if you want to ride it in a casual manner that it's not jumpy or demanding or ready to go fast whether you like it or not it can you can ride it as any other full dresser just take it easy uh, the great fueling just smooth fantastic motor uh, again easy handling uh, just because it's stable at high speeds doesn't mean you know if when you're in the tighter stuff it just means it's stable in the corners and it really is uh, you know I, anytime I'd go through a bunch of s's the bike was completely intuitive to ride. Never surprised me, never caught me out. Always did what I expected it to do. Now, I'm an experienced rider and I'm a smart guy and I know what to expect. You can clearly get into trouble on the motorcycle, but there's no reason to if you use your head and you have a bit of experience, which I think most uh, Indian pursuit buyers would have. And I don't think it's you know, going to be too many first first buys it looks like they've really made a lot of attention to detail i mean some of the you know the stitching they've got the sort of the diamond stitching on the seats and on the backrest on on the uh on that that back box 
there just seem like a lot of details on it that they really makes the bike stand out. Yeah, the version I rode was the Indian Pursuit with the premium package. And that added a few things to make the bike a little bit more enjoyable. Uh, the, the biggest thing it adds is electronically adjustable rear uh, spring preload. Now, this isn't any kind of semi-active suspension or even adjustable damping. No, it, all it does is it, it gives the right ride height to the bike. And one thing it does great, and this is something that Indian really deserves a lot of credit for, their infotainment system is outstanding. Some of the infotainment systems that we get are a little difficult to learn. And maybe if you have a motorcycle long enough, you're going to learn it and you ride it often enough. That's part of the issue is, is not only do you have to own it, but you also have to ride it frequently enough that you're familiar with how it operates. The uh, Indian infotainment system is incredibly easy to use right away. And you can go right to the setup for the spring preload. And instead of, you know, you sitting there and pushing a button to make it go up and down, up and down, oh, what is it supposed to be? Where it's supposed to be? Which you'll never figure out. It lets you put in all these parameters. Like it tells you if it's a single rider or if you have two riders, which we've seen on others, but it goes a little step beyond that. It has you put in the weight of the riders. Now, your passenger may not want to tell you her weight, but you'll, she might have to add a couple pounds to it when you're putting it in, but that's okay. It tell, and you also put in the weight that you put in the side bags and the top box. So it looks at all those different parameters, your weight, passenger weight, and luggage weight, and then it adjusts the spring preload to what it considers to be the optimum setting. And that's, that's pretty cool because I like, I like systems like that. And Ducati's also gotten into that a bit where it's about understanding what you want rather than you, you guessing like, oh, well, I want, what traction control level do you want? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or eight? It's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> but if it kind of gives you an, an idea of what those numbers mean or what it will do, you know, or wheelie control, wheelie control. Do you want one, two, three, four, five, six, or seven? Uh, so do you want like a little wheelie? Do you want a lot of wheelie? Do you want to drag the tail? And then you would just do that right. instead of giving you a number. So this, this is really good. And it has built-in GPS and you can pair your phone and play music and it's got, it's got the speakers, but you know, and they make a big deal about how good their speakers sound, how great it is. But when I'm on the road, it's just a bunch of noise. Now I wear a full face helmet and I wear earplugs, but once I got up to 60 miles an hour, I, the, the music might as well have just been white noise. Right. So I, th I think that I feel like stereo systems on, on motorcycles are for people who ride with no helmet around town and they can hear it really good. It sounds great. But if you're out touring, you got a full face helmet on and earplugs, it's, you know, I mean, it's just a kind of an unreasonable expectation that it would do anything more than just make some, a bunch of racket. And maybe the music I listen to is a bunch of noise anyway, but <laughs> that aside, that's a feature that I think is kind of, doesn't quite work <laughs> as much as they would like it, as much as they would like you to believe it works. They, there's a lot of like self, self-fooling going on there but anyway beyond that it also has uh, uh, an IMU so you get cornering ABS and also cornering traction control which is great it's one of those things where the way I ride and the way you think you ride anybody would ride it in Indian pursuit you're not going to really notice if I'm pushing the edge oh I'm grabbing the brakes oh good traction you know traction control when I got the throttle uh, you know or the brakes ABS oh I'm glad it was on the side you know, you're just not riding like that. But 
if for some reason you're in a corner and you hit like a slick spot or you put give it too much break, it'll go in there and you know adjust for that, and that's good. So it's it's definitely more of a safety feature than a performance feature that you're going to notice, and and that's good. Uh, it also gets driving lights, which are LEDs that are uh, smart lights, and uh, so when you go into the corners, it can light the inside of the corner, which is great. I didn't really ride it when it was that dark. I did ride it in a at a time where I could could see it in action, but not not that much. But it it seems to work. And the last one, which is why I actually got on this subject, is it had the heated touring comfort seat, and that's where you get that that diamond stitching and you get a little switch on the side so you can heat it and that's great uh, i rode on on warm days there's no way i wanted the the heater heated seat or the stock heated grips to be on <laughs> it was already warm enough right uh indian also offers a uh, air conditioned seat that gets cooler wow and uh, i didn't ride that but i've talked to people who have and they say it actually does what it says and that, you know, you don't realize how how warm your butt can be until you get an air conditioned seat and you go, oh, that's kind of nice. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, it's like a, a, a feature I would never think of. But I think if you get it, you kind of go, oh, well, that's kind of cool. You know, I, mean, I, I don't even feel like I need a heated seat when I ride. That's just not a part of my body that I notice getting cold. You know, it's my hands, my face, my body, right. my legs. From the waist down, I seem to not have problems getting cold. But again, everybody's <laughs> different. They could go, oh, a heated seat is the ultimate in, you know, comfort. And right. anyway, so it has it has a heated seat and it looks good whether you ever turn it on or not. I see it has an electrically adjustable windshield. Yeah. So how, how effective is that? Big difference. Uh, although, really? okay. yeah, uh, when it's down, uh, you, you feel the air, not like in a super negative way, but you definitely feel it. And you really know how much you feel it when you put it up, when you crank that thing up, it's like you're in this cocoon of stillness, but you're then looking through the windshield, at least at my height, 510. You know, my eyes are deaf. I'm, there's no way I'm looking over the windshield when it's in the up position. When it's in the down position, it's in my, it's clearly in my uh, field of view, but it's below say the horizon. So I'm, I'm looking over it, looking at, at the, at the, at the road. So, you know, depending on how fast you're going or how you're, you know, how cold it is, how warm it is, you know, it's great to be able to adjust it with the button on the right, just, you know, up for up and down for down. And that's always a, a, a feature you want, you know, when they have these ones where you have to get off, or you have to stop, or you, have to, you know, or it doesn't move at all, or you have to put a different windscreen on. That's not the way to go for touring because touring has so many different situations that you run into, you know, you'll, you'll have, you, you might have a day where it's warm and cold in the same day or you, oh. you know or you it's windy or not you know whatever it is things change on a on a trip and you want to be able to adapt to them as quickly and easily as possible and and and, and the windshield moves up and down a considerably wide swath so it really truly does make a difference and uh and that's that's good there's also in the lowers they have some vents and again, those, you can feel it. I mean, when they're open, the air's coming down through your legs. And again, I was riding mostly in, in warm, you know, it's warm time of the year, not the hot time of the year, definitely the warm time of the year. And you feel it, but when you close it, then, you know, it can start to heat up a little as you get, you know, heat thrown off of the engine and the radiator. So it's, it's nice to be able to have that additional option of, of whether you 
want air flowing through or not flowing through and collecting it so you can be warmer when it's when it's cold right as far as uh you know you're touring you, you know you have the top box and the two side bags really well designed really easy to operate obviously they don't detach you don't bring them in the room but uh you can put get you know get a bag that fits it so you can just carry everything in uh from them but they're just they're auto locking just very very intuitive and you know, this is a bike with a fob and I've, you know, I've, I've slowly been won over to the fob world. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind if I don't have a fob and I have a key, but I, you know, I used to hate the fob and now I'm kind of okay with the fob. And I suppose someday I'll be excited about the fob. Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm still in the uh, disliking it stage, but uh, yeah. But okay. Well, you ride, you ride different kinds of motorcycles. I ride these kind of bikes more often and, and so they behave better. You know, the, the fob works more often than it used to. You know, I, I remember okay. uh, being Kelly on a Triumph Tiger uh, 1200 and all of a sudden the fob was not working out in the middle of nowhere where we had no cell service, no nothing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was like, uh, yeah, great, you know? And then, you know, I turned everything off and waited like five minutes and turned it all back on and it started working. So I was much happier when it started working. but you know the so the fob thing you know you always feel like you wish the fob also had like a little key in it that you would key in somewhere you know secret or something so that if the fob doesn't work that the key will yeah and you know but there's all sorts of of functions on motorcycles now that we take for granted and don't demand a backup you know it's like electric starting we don't say well man i think this bike needs a kickstarter <laughs> That's true. Yeah. We just accept that that's how it's going to be, you know, and, and that it's going to work. And, you know, in the aeroplane world, you have to have lots and lots of redundancy because if something goes wrong, it will probably kill you. In the motorcycle world, if it if something goes wrong, it'll leave you stranded by the side of the road, but probably won't kill you. Right. So I think that you sort of need less redundancy. But at the same time, I agree with you. It'd be nice if there was some sort of emergency startup in case the fob is missing or what have you. You'd think there'd be somewhere where you could input some sort of code or what have you. But um, and I know I think Ducati have that. There could be a code. I you know I, I didn't have the bike long enough to even think about that. <laughs> you know, like is there a code or right. you know that's for me. It's probably like one of those things where I wouldn't be thinking about that code until it was too late. Like oh. The code. I have no idea. You know. Right. And again, right. when you when that happens and there's no cell service, it's a bad day because you can't like pull up your phone and look for that YouTube video that tells you how to hotwire the bike. <laughs> right. So I, I mean the other thing that's quite impressive is is the number of colors. I mean, typically bikes like this come in like two colorways. This seems to have about eight. Oh well, it depends on what packages you get. You know, I had the dark horse and there's there's four colors for that. And the premium package, it has a four color choice, whereas the limited has three color choices if you get the limited or you get the limited with the premium package. I mean, Harley Davidson has a lot of colors too. So this is not, uh, in fact, I would say that the Indian color selection is much more conservative than the Harley Davidson. Okay. The Harley Davidson's, they'll have like more of the two color looks in the, you know, maybe a little bit more, you know, changes with the, uh, they'll, some will have the bar and shield, uh, they'll have the name, 
So actually Harley offers a, a wider range of color and graphics options typically in this certainly in this class than the Indian does. But there's still you know plenty. Uh, looking at the dark horse with a premium package, you get black smoke, uh, spirit blue metallic, which is probably different than regular blue metallic because it's spirit blue metallic. <laughs> and then silver quartz smoke, which is the bike I rode. And we kind of had to squint a bit for this, you know, the, it's, it's, the, the quartz is in there, you know, it's, it's not quite silver, but it, 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 I don't know, the smoke, okay, it, it looks good. You know, it's, it's not the color I would have personally cho chosen if I were buying the bike, but it still looks good. The blue looks great. And then there's a ruby metallic over black metallic, which is the two-tone version. And that's the one that, you know, looks, looks pretty cool to me, you know, it's red and black. And so, but, you know, you pay for that. It's another 1500 bucks over the standard one, which, you know, if you're paying the standard black smoke version is with the premium packages is, is 34,000. So, you know, if you're going to pay another 1500 to get the color you like, I, I can see that right. certainly is, is an option. Or you can just go with black because everything goes with black. Again, I can see from some of the pictures going back to the infotainment system. I see that it has Apple CarPlay on it. Does it have Android Auto as well? You know, I cannot answer that question. Uh, it doesn't say that it does. And I don't have an Android phone. So I wasn't, I, I never did not occur to me to try to pair my phone for Android since I didn't have the Android. <laughs> uh, they have the right command, the standard right command system. And really it's, it's so well implemented that yes, the Apple CarPlay is a step up from that, but it's not an essential step. I think if you had uh, an Android phone, so you couldn't, it, it doesn't seem to have the Android, you still get, have a lot of functionality out of the, the system. So, you know, you don't have the full functionality, you don't, you're not left so far behind that you're grumpy. <laughs> What's the sort of luggage capacity of the uh, the back box on there? Is it is it pretty decent? The bags look like they're sort of standard size. Oh, you can throw a couple of helmets in there. Okay. Everything is kind of in the same realm. They all, you know, they all kind of try to meet the same capacity standards. They say 35 gallons. Awesome. You know, usually you're talking liters, so you multiply that by four and add a bit. So you're looking at like 140 or 150 liters. You can throw your helmet in there with the top box that I'm thinking about it. You know, there's there's plenty of room in there. And I really like the way they operate, the way they open, the way they latch close. Really high quality. Uh, you don't worry about it opening or, oh, is it really shut? You know, and, and, it, and it feels good. And they're lockable, obviously. Right. This is a bike where you could cruise at 100 miles an hour until you got pulled over. Uh -huh. You know, you just, and if you pick the right roads, you might be able to cruise at 100 miles an hour most of the day and that's not always true on a, on a bike of this type although it's becoming more common with the with the big v twins that they can go at some pretty high speeds uh it wasn't that long ago where like on a harley electric glide you know if you're going above 65 it was like okay that's kind of getting a little nervous here whereas now you know with the big aluminum frame the you know beefy suspension everything is the way it should be you know the the engineers got involved and said okay you know we can make the bike look good and look you know presentable but we can also make it function as a high performance motorcycle and in and, and the the indian pursuit really is you know a high performance full dresser tour 
I mean, you can, you know, you can, you can, you can go on it. And, and what that means, of course, is that a bike that's going to be stable at those kind of speeds and handles good and has good suspension is, is going to work really nicely for people who are running in the eighties, which is what I rode most of the time. I mean, most of the time I was just going around about 80, 75, 85, whatever, you know, when I ride, motorcycle i don't really spend a lot of time looking at the speedometer you know that's not what i got on the bike to do i got on the bike to ride at the speed i want to ride and the way i want to ride and while i may look out for the police or be aware that you know i'm not you know if they pull me over and go how fast are you going well i will have glanced down the moment i saw their light go on but before that i'm not paying attention to that so now when i'm testing a bike i will look to see oh, fast. oh i'm going this fast it feels good and in this case, you know, I was, the bike, like I said, goes, will, will accelerate up to hundred miles an hour without taking a breath, just we're there. And you can, you can cruise along at that speed without feeling that like the engine or the suspension or you are, are overstressed, get a little bit above that. And then you start to go, okay, I'm, I'm pushing it. But if you're, if you can keep it in double figures, you know, you're, you're going to be super satisfied with the comfort of, of the bike and the behavior of the bike. Uh, you know, uh, it's got plenty of passing power when you want to go by somebody. You might, you know, it's not quite the super long stroke motor that you get you know, in some of the air-cooled ones. Uh, it is, you know, in fact, it's not, it's not long stroke at all. It is, it, it is uh, over square. So you might shift down one gear. I mean, six is, I don't want to say six is exactly an overdrive, but it's close enough to an overdrive to call it an overdrive. And, you know, if you shift down one gear, the thing will completely come alive and, and at any speed and just go right by somebody. If you're in sixth and you're going, and the guy ahead of you is only going 80 and you want to go 85, you get on the throttle, it moves, you know, but you won't be, pat, you know, you would need to look ahead and say, how much room do I have to pass? Uh, whereas if you shift down one bank, you're by. So, you know, I love the motor. The six-speed transmission is great. Uh, the only thing I didn't like, and other people will go, well, I like it that way, is it's, it's only a toe shifter. They don't go with heel toe. And I kind of see why they did that because the heel toe thing, for me, it puts me in that touring mode. I'm like, it slows you down. You have to really actively, okay, I'm pushing with my heel, I'm pushing with my toe. Uh, this bike doesn't work that way. It's just, you know, you have floorboards, but the, so you have a raised uh, shifter. And yeah, you got to get your foot up in the air pretty far to, to shift down, but it's not, it's not too bad. But uh, I, I, I like the heel toe shifter and uh, Indians just, that's kind of not their deal, which is fine. And there are options you can, you can, you can have that if you want it. One thing I'd say about the cornering and uh, capability is the, the rake is only 25 degrees on the bike. And that's, that's, that's a sport bike number. Now, on the other hand, the wheelbase is, is almost 66 inches. So that's a lot longer. So there's where your stability comes. So you have kind of that steering capability. It has the 16 inch rear wheel and the 19 inch front. And so the 19 inch front has a lot of gyroscopic action going for it. And that's one reason, you know, it stays so stable at uh, uh, high speeds. Now, sometimes, you know, I always go back and forth. Do I want a you know, smaller front wheel that's wider? Do I want the bigger diameter front wheel that's narrower? In this case, the way the pursuit handles, 
in the corners and the way it goes, it's, it's kind of nice having that lighter touch of the, of the 19. You still have stability. It's not like that front end's wobbling around with this little teeny narrow front tire. So uh, it's, you know, in many ways, it's kind of something you don't really actively notice. You know, it's just kind of a feel later, like, oh yeah, that's bike big as it is, it steers lightly. It turns, you know, turns well. You know, the front end isn't pushing like you go, oh man, I, I need more meat on the front wheel, you know, and, or in the front tire and it's just not that way. So, uh, you know, it has Metzler Cruise Tech tires, which are, you know, they're sport touring tires. They're not high performance tires, but you know, they're exactly what you want. They're a tire that has good performance, wet or dry, and has uh, good wear characteristics because, you know, changing, Changing a set of tires on these is, is, is something you don't want to do every 2,000 miles. Yeah, for sure. Right. <laughs> so, you know, because that's, for most people, that's a trip to the dealer and it's probably going to cost you around a grand before you're, you know, out the back out the door with, with fresh rubber. Yeah. I should mention the brakes, uh, Brembo's all, all around. Radio calipers at the front. Yeah. And 320 millimeter discs. So you got the, the big boys there. Now, again, this is a big boy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really you know uh nearly 900 pounds and when i'm on it it's you know you're, you're looking at a half ton plus so but the brakes never misbehaved you know if you got on them they're strong they're not like ultra strong again if you're riding a bike like this you don't want you know super bike brakes you want a controllable brakes but you know they have the softest bite in the world coming in you know, when you pull in tight, it, the bike slows down well. Uh, the, rear, the rear brake works well, you know, when you're just kind of going at super slow speeds. You know, if it, I always tell people, if, if you're turning the front wheel, you don't want a front brake on. <laughs> so, you, you know, you're working around parking lots or something, you want to just drag your rear. And it does that very well. Uh, tons of feel. You know, I never have problems with things locking up. And, you know, I could get the abs to fire but it wasn't easy and it wasn't in you know it's never intrusive and in normal riding you know it's just not going to the abs is never you're never going to need the abs the bike tires setup promotes good traction the braking power delivery it all makes it so you don't really need the abs uh, there's no power modes of course that hasn't quite spread to this uh you know genre of motorcycles which you know uh they could do that and i probably wouldn't complain but uh you know if if i if i had a little extra power version and a little lower power version i i could live with that but without it it's fine you know most people are not gonna need that other choice right sure and of course abs and traction control are always on always in the same setting there's no super moto mode for when you want to back it in or there's none of that so it's not a motorcycle with a ton of personality again that's more of the indian roadmaster way with the you know the big lumpy delivery of, you know the short the long stroke and the air cooled and this is more of you know i don't want to i also say appliance that's not a word people like to use on motorcycles but it's one that we see often uh, a, a really good example of that is when you first when you start the engine up you know how on like a BWR18, the bike jerks from side to side, or when you hit it on a Harley, uh, you know, big inch Harley, 
the engine starts shaking, shaking around. Everything starts happening. Oh, wow, right, and it's really exciting. Right. When you push the button like this, it's like on a Honda Goldwing. It's just like, you know, this starts. The bike just starts to purr. You know, like, oh, I guess it's on. Yeah. You know, and so it's 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 definitely in that m mode of a modern motorcycle. It's not a retro motorcycle at all. It's a it's a completely modern design, which is which I said, which is, which is fantastic because they offered the retro experience in the Roadmaster for people who want that. And so, but the people who don't want that can have, can have this modern handling, modern power, modern feel. Right. And just, and just that extra sophistication that, that right. you know, liquid cooling and, and all of that brings. Yeah. And the Brembo's with the radial mounts and people go, oh, that's cool. You know, and, you know, it's something where, uh, your sport bike buddies will come up and go, they'll see some of this stuff and go, oh, that's a pretty cool bike. Uh, can I ride it? You know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's like, oh, I might give that a try. That's got, that's got a lot of the features that I like, you know? So it's, it's kind of a little bit of a crossover, a little bit of a enticing motorcycle for, you know, people moving into that genre for the first time. Yeah. So that's what the Indian pursuit and said with the, with the premium package that I wrote was really all about. As, as with most motorcycles, I have to admit, I really liked it. Uh, yeah, I liked riding it. I felt cool when I was on it. People see the bike. Uh, the bike looks cool. You know, maybe not as cool as, as, as some Harley Davidson because that's really, you know, that's Harley Davidson's strongest suit is their bikes look super cool. And again, the Indian Roadmaster, if I had that, people would be more in the, oh, that bike looks cool. This bike is more sophisticated cool that doesn't entice people to tell you how cool it is if that makes any sense. It does, it does. Yeah, I, I personally really like it. I, I like the look of it. I think it's it's beautiful and it's clearly just a, a quality machine um, and a quality build. Okay, well, um, thanks for the insight. I uh, greatly appreciate it. Yeah, um, I will talk to you again. Excellent, all right. Okay, thanks, Don. Bye. In this second segment, Associate Editor and Podcast Producer TJ Adams chats to Lauren Turnbull. She's actually one of the moderators at the respected East Coast Female Riders Group in Australia. You can find it on Facebook. She's just started her own digital motorcycle magazine for ladies called Girl Moto Media. Lauren chats with TJ about her experience riding in Thailand's northwest corner. The famed Mei Hong Son Loop is an unbelievably spectacular ride through mist-covered mountain passes and steamy jungles. Lauren and her partner rented a couple of Yamahas and rode the nearly 2,000 corners that make up the almost 400-mile-long four-day ride. Sounds unbelievable. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. 
With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. 2022 is the 100th anniversary of Schuberth helmets, head protection technology made in Germany. The DOT version of the new C5 launches this June and it offers a revised fit with customizable inner pads for comfort, increased ventilation with a new chin air intake and rear exhaust spoiler, and increased safety with new EPS material and anti-roll-off system. It also has a locking mechanism to hold the chin bar open and it's pre-wired for the new SC2 communication system offering mesh by Senna. Learn more about the all new features at shoebirth.com. The new Shoebirth C5, endless evolution. It's very exciting when I saw you posting. Um, first of all, I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit more about ECFR, East Coast Female Riders. Yeah, yep. You know, not a lot of people, although you have thousands of members, not a lot of people know about you. No, I guess the, the people who do are very passionate about it, but there is still a lot of female riders out there that wouldn't be aware that we exist. So it's um, East Coast Female Riders, which we pretty much lovingly refer to as ECFR all of the time. And it is, as it sounds, generally up and down the east coast of Australia is where our members are, the east coast being probably the most populated area of Australia. And at the moment, we've got a, a little over 5,300 members of all female riders. And it was started as a safe space for women to come together to ride and be a community to network and learn from each other. Women sometimes prefer that all-female environment. I guess traditionally motorcycle riding has been dominated by men. And whilst a lot of women ride with men, it's a different experience riding only with women. Uh, for some, it creates that safe space where they feel like they can open up and ask questions where they may not traditionally feel that they can do that with, with men uh, in the forum. And from that has grown a network of women who are genuinely very supportive of each other. Um, it, it's mainly run through a Facebook page. So there's a forum there where lots of questions get asked and, and posts are made. Uh, showing the women in the group, you know, what, what everybody's doing. Each area is broken up into smaller geographical areas and that is looked after by a, a group leader or a moderator. And I personally look after our Gold Coast region, which is a region right on the border with New South Wales and, and southeast Queensland. I have to say it's very, it's very well organised. I joined myself about I think about six years ago so I don't know how long ECFR has been running um, and I've joined a lot of uh, female riding groups because I was single and found that it was all very nice on the group chat etc but we didn't meet each other and what I liked about ECFR was everybody was very available and really willing to come to my house and help yeah I got stuck in my garage because it was down a big dip and I was scared of the hill up straight onto a main road and, you know, one of the ladies just came around and spent the morning 
and, and you know, gain my confidence to do that. So I like the way it's broken into those groups. And I didn't realize you were, you know, a moderator for one of the groups. Mm. So you're a moderator of the Gold Coast. I'm two things. So there is a small administration team. Obviously, a group like this um, does need some women to pull it all together. So there is a small administration team, and all of us are, are based around Australia, who basically just moderate the posts. Uh, we do have, we try not to have too many rules, but there are a couple, and the main one being um, it's a no judgment space. So we don't do things like put up photos of, of people riding in a certain way or in certain attire that people may have opinions or judgments on um, because we don't want to be a judgment-based place. Uh, we want to be a safe place for people to come and, and be themselves and ask questions and so on. So we do need a small administration team to just moderate those things. On the whole, it, it's very, very good and people are, are there for very genuine reasons. Um, and that team also spends their time um, utilising ECFR for its greater purpose. And that is overall for each year, we like to raise money for women-based charities. And we do that through the motor motorcycle community. And it might be things like celebrating International Female Ride Day, which is um, in May each year. And moderators in their areas will create a special ride event for International Female Ride Day and uh, last year as an example each woman who attended came along and donated a packet of uh, women's sanitary products so that they could be donated to charities to provide them to women who are in need or we might do raffles or mm. other um, prize-based uh, arrangements where money can be raised that can then be donated to the, the charity of choice and it's as I said usually a women-based charity. We will also create merchandise that the members purchase so for example we've recently just done a breast cancer awareness uh, campaign where we created a special ECFR breast cancer t-shirt and the profits from those t-shirts were donated to breast cancer research. So each year we will choose charities to do that. And the way that we raise that money with raffles and prizes and so on is we do have what we call sponsors. So they must be motorcycle based and those sponsors. Yes, we have a fantastic range of sponsors. So we try to make them sponsors that are universal to the national location of the group. Sometimes that's not always the case, but those sponsors um, provide their merchandise or their services to ECFR members, um, usually with a discounted promo code and they donate one thing each year that we can use to raise money from. So it's an awesome arrangement and the sponsors are, are very well loved by the group. And, um, you know, as much as possible, I usually find women like to support people and women who support them. So we do very well having sponsors as part of the group. So, yeah, so each area, as I mentioned, is broken up into a geographic area led by a, a moderator and, as much as possible, remembering that each of those roles are completely voluntary, as is the administration roles. So people are, are doing this around their everyday lives. We, we try to create a number of rides each month. 
for the local members to be involved in. So I can really mainly speak to my own area, but we work on three rides each month, one of them being a weekend ride, the other being a midweek ride. And then our third is usually a dinner coupled with a short ride. So I actually have one this evening with my group. So we meet and we just do a short 20 to 30 minute ride together to our dinner location and then we get together and enjoy each other's company so that's an awesome way for the women to get to meet each other and perhaps break the ice a little bit before they come and join a ride we have varying um, degrees of attendance to those depending on what people are going on again I can only speak to my area but generally we'll have anywhere from 10 up to 40 women who will join us for for those rides and Over the 18 months that I've been doing it, I've seen some amazing friendships and connections form from that. It's really quite amazing seeing women come together in that space. And, you know, the resounding comment that I get from first time women joining us is that it's nothing like they expected. And it was so laid back and very supportive and very nurturing and that they were really glad that they did it. Yes, I've seen, you know, complete beginners just blossom you go out on the several rides and you know they, they get more and more confident it's it's a great organization i mean it's very well thought out and the the best group i've come across for organizations yeah thank you quite often you know i see a shout goes out for a moderator and people step up really quite readily everybody's very keen which is really nice to see because most people have experienced what you explained and that's a real um receiving of that support and Again, women really make me proud sometimes to see how they respond to those situations. And generally, it's that they want to give back. And and that's their way of thanking the group for what they received from it. And so, yes, we do see some amazing women able to step up. And often under difficult circumstances, we are busy. Of course, this is a hobby that we we love and we want to include it in our life as much as possible and um, we don't always have the time that we would like to do those things so the women who do that who do step up are really genuinely donating a big portion of their their time to create that space for other women which is just really lovely to see yes very generous very generous do you know how many sponsors you've got last time I looked it, it looked as though you've got about sort of 10 or half a dozen or 12 not half a dozen 10 or a whole dozen (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is about right so um there is one lady on our administration team who is heading up sponsorship and she's really focusing on that this year because we have seen um a great response to the women wanting to support the sponsors and the sponsors wanting to support the group Um, of course that naturally comes as numbers grow it becomes an audience that is very important to uh, motorcycle businesses but also you know particularly being female oriented and particularly being an organization that does focus part of their purpose on charity it's it's certainly something that uh, has room to grow and, and that is being looked at this year so um how did you come about going on your trip to thailand my partner and i Uh, We try to have an overseas trip each year and in the five years that we have been together, it just so happens that we've always done that in March because that happens to be where when my birthday is. So essentially, my amazing, wonderful man makes that my birthday present each year. Perfect. Now, of course, with a pandemic going on the last 
birthday slash overseas trip that we were able to have was in March 2019. So we missed out on 2020 and 2021. Wow, you're lucky to get 2019 in. That was just when everything stopped. That's exactly right. We managed to squeeze that in. Uh, so for us, we were really just itching to get going with that again. And, and right at the very end of December, you know, just after Christmas, we were having some downtime from our jobs and we just started to have a look at what was happening with uh, travel restrictions. And we started to hear, you know, little nibbles of information that perhaps Australia was going to open up its re-entry or entry requirements and we thought you know what let's we're so itching to do this let's just book this trip um like a lot of people because we had things booked in that were cancelled and so on we had some travel vouchers sitting there waiting to be used from previously cancelled flights and and so on and i had a particular airline voucher uh, that was going to expire if i didn't book something so we just sat there at those couple of days after Christmas and said let's just take a chance on this let's hope that if we can book something for March which was about you know two and a half months out from where we were sitting that that everything would just drop into place in terms of travel restrictions both for entering Thailand and for re-entering Australia and it just so turned out that that's what happened we were able to do it fantastic and you chose the Mai Hong Son loop yeah Mei, Mei Hong May Hong Son Loop, I believe it's pronounced. May Hong Son Loop. Mm. I had a little look at that. It looks challenging. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's probably the word for it. <laughs> Let's first of all talk about um, motorcycles. So presumably you had to hire a motorcycle? We did. We did not ship one across with us, so we certainly hired one locally. So for me, I had been to Thailand previously, but it was about 15 years ago and uh, my partner hadn't. So we split the trip in half. The first, we were, we were there for two weeks and the first half was spent um, doing what a lot of people would imagine they'd do in Thailand, and that's enjoying the beaches and, and the food and so on. Uh, for me, I had never been to the north of Thailand to a place called Chiang Mai. And I had heard that Chiang Mai, it's very different to the south of Thailand. It's not island-based. It's not beach-based. Uh, it's very much about rainforest. And I had heard that it was a motorcycle mecca. And it turned out to be the case. So when I did some research, I found that the Mei Hong Song Loop is uh, a bucket list motorcycle trip for a lot of people. Because of that, Chiang Mai is really well set up for motorcycle hire. So normally when you say motorcycle in Thailand, the locals automatically assume that you mean scooter because that is a massive transport option for them there, given the population and, and the yeah. ease of moving around on scooters. Um, for us, because we are motorcyclists we wanted to do that trip on a motorbike that was similar to what we were used to riding and and as I said that's not a usual local form of transport but because Chiang Mai has a lot of tourists who come specifically to ride that loop and also another one called the Golden Triangle there are a number of higher organizations set up with what they call the big bikes so some of them are even called big bike hire and we were lucky enough to be able to find the type of motorcycles that we wanted to ride. 
What did you choose? We chose the Yamaha MTs. So we picked an MT-03 and an MT-07. It is a little bit of a balancing act to ride in Thailand. So we had the mountain riding conditions with some extreme cornering, extreme hairpin cornering. But we also were aware that in the evenings in particular, we would be riding into and riding around quite small local towns. And, you know, as we did experience, you're often riding through streets that are lined by markets. So there are literally, you know, people two and three abreast on either side of the road walking down those streets and you need to navigate your motorcycle through the middle of those. So we didn't want anything too big mm -hmm. either because we knew we'd be doing some some idling style riding through the center of town but we wanted something that was would meet our riding style and and be big enough to really pull us up those very steep mountains in some cases so for us yeah we are sports bike riders traditionally in Australia so um we wanted a bike that that was similar there I had researched the the loop and had noticed those hairpin turns or in fact it's 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 greatly advertised that there's over 1800 turns to ride and and I'd seen the images of some of them they 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 literally switch back on themselves Incredible. so you know having been a cruiser rider in my previous life I thought I don't know if I could get a big cruiser around those very tight corners <laughs> no you want something that's <laughs> a little bit nimble and the mt03 i mean that that's a real fun i've ridden that one that's a fun motorcycle right and really willing and friendly you know. very much so and i also knew that i wanted something that um you know obviously being on a four-day loop we had to take some luggage with us um so we wanted something that that would suit the way we were carrying that as well so for us that was backpacks and i'd also taken a tail bag with me that I use in Australia and this particular tail bag um, does really really well on a sports style bike because it you, you clip it under the pillion seat um, so we, we were sort of looking for something that would tick all of those boxes and the MTs did that and you know I thought for me the the O3 would be absolutely perfect because I, I felt that I didn't really need anything too powerful I mean some people particularly the locals would do that loop riding 150cc scooters so it's not that the, the scooters aren't powerful enough to do it I, I knew we didn't need a huge amount of power mm. but having said that my partner and I did switch bikes mm. and on the second uh, sorry on the third and the fourth day I ended up riding the 07 because personally I actually found that a bit easier I'd actually mistakenly thought the smaller bike would be better for me but funnily enough TJ I actually found that the bigger bike was easier to ride through those very tight corners I could just really I just it was funny I just found it easier to keep the throttle much steadier coming around those switchbacks and especially going uphill as opposed to downhill and I just found that the MT really pulled the sorry the 07 really pulled me through those corners um, my partner is a much much more experienced rider than I did and I found that I had to push the 03 a little more and uh, in particular, if he was leading, I, I felt that I had to ring it a bit more to be catching up with him. Whereas when we switched and I had that slightly more powerful bike, I was moving a bit faster and it was a pace that suited both of us then. And and funnily enough, it just smelt, it felt much smoother and 
and much easier for me on those those corners it ended up being a really great bike and he was happy on the 03 and I was very happy on the 07. That's interesting isn't it? Yeah. Interesting. You can just switch around and have slightly different experience and yeah. from the same family and uh, but you know enjoy both in a different way. Definitely yeah it was good to be able to switch actually and enjoy that experience. So do you think you would choose to be completely on the the 07 if you went again or you'd stick to the 03? I would choose the 07 again for my partner he said he really didn't care again I I think that just came down to his riding skill he could get exactly what he needed out of out of that littler bike and so for him he didn't feel like it changed his experience it we talked about the the type of riding we did on this trip and there is so much to see along that ride Um, that of course you want to enjoy your bike and and what it offers but that ultimately wasn't what it was about yes we did enjoy pushing them through those corners and testing our skills in doing that but on the same token you really didn't want to ride too fast because you were missing out on too much by doing that so as he said if if I was wanting to ride to really experience everything that the bike had to offer the 03 probably wouldn't have been enough for him. But given that this was more of a cruisy ride to really take in everything going on around you, you know, yes. if, you, if you were really concentrating on moving quickly and, and taking corners with perfect lines and so on, you'd miss seeing baby water buffalo in the paddock beside wow. you or, you know, watching the kids play their local sport or the, just any number of uh, abundant things that, you know we were witnessing being on that trip and just slowing it down a little bit just riding slightly differently to maybe how we would at home sounds like a smorgasbord of adventure almost too much almost an overload of senses it was just so much did you have communications helmet comms we didn't and that is we we did a bit of a debrief at the end of our trip and said what would we have done differently one of the things that we really agonized over was whether to take our own helmets which we do have wide for the comms between the two of us because this trip wasn't just about being on the bikes we had to think carefully about um, you know minimizing luggage and we made the decision not to bring our own helmets knowing that you know I again had done some research and I knew that the bike hire companies were offering full-faced helmets and so on which was important to us Um, again motorcycle safety is something that is uh, it's improving in Thailand unfortunately they do have one of the highest uh, accident rates in the world and unfortunately the highest death rates attached to that And we had a number of locals explaining to us that the government is having to do a huge amount of work to educate the locals on improving their motorcycle safety. And that includes even riding with helmets, let alone a full face helmet. So at first I was a little bit worried that if they gave us helmets, I've I've ridden in Asia before and been given a helmet that was probably not much more than a bicycle style helmet. And I thought, I don't know if I want to ride 1800 twisties in a motorcycle helmet that isn't going to help me if something were to happen no but I had done the research and found the the big bike companies in particular were very aware of of motorcycle safety and were offering very good um, full-faced helmets so we decided to go with those but that did mean that we were operating without our our comms system and that definitely would have been a nice to have not so much 
in terms of being able to communicate with each other, that was very easy just to pull over and have a quick chat. There was usually somewhere to be able to pull over um, a lot, as long as we weren't mid-switchback, <laughs> which there were a lot of those. Um, more from the point of view that both of us enjoy writing with music and I really missed having my music and I did try to ride with my uh, my AirPods, but uh, just the helmet that I had, the, the insides were set up in such a way that I literally couldn't get it over my head without pulling my earpods out. So, right. uh, and the other thing was it probably wasn't as good a helmet as I was used to riding with and it was very, very noisy from a, a, an internal wind point of view. I ride with earplugs normally anyway, just because I find that that really reduces my exhaustion levels when I ride, when I have earplugs in, even though I'm, I'm playing my music and so on. So I took those with me and I found that I really, really needed those. That's interesting. So in hindsight, had I had my own helmet wired for my communications, I'd have been able to wear my earplugs, have my music playing, have my lighter helmet on so that the one I had was quite heavy and I was feeling that in my body towards the end of each day. It was a lot of riding. Mm -hmm. I must admit, I would take my own helmet. I'm very, I'm even specifically brand orientated on the safety. Yes. Our eyes are the safest rise, as we say in America. And I right. take mine everywhere. <laughs> so yeah. I would I would take my own. I would throw out a few evening dresses and take my helmet. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I, I agree. We we took our own um jackets and um riding pants and riding boots. So I guess by the time we'd included all of that in the luggage, we flew with an airline where our luggage was restricted to I talk in kilos, so to 20 kilos. It's not a lot when you're going for a couple of weeks and especially when you you have a trip that's split in two very different types of of travel. Uh, And when we'd included our jackets, pants and boots, that was, you know, quite a significant amount already. And so we wanted to use our carry-on luggage for other things. I'm self-employed, so I needed to bring a laptop with me to be able to, you know, for some reason my staff still wanted to be paid while I was away and I had to do the invoicing and things like that. So I had to carry a laptop online with on 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 the plane with me and so that limited my ability to carry a helmet as well so all of these things that you deliberate about but you know you live and learn it is a lesson learned in hindsight I would actually make some other amendments to make sure that I could bring my own helmet and particularly with my comms and and it's just those little niceties or those things that you get used to when you ride a lot that I, I did notice that they were missing for me and mm. I would like to have them next time if I do that again. Well, everybody listening is going to learn from your experience. And so you'll be, you know, pointing things like that out to a lot of people. Um, yeah. what, what about the actual process or the, the hiring of the motorcycle? Do they keep your passport? And what about insurance? Did you feel you had good enough insurance to get yourself out of any sticky situations in Thailand? That, you know, what if you had to be home to Australia or... Yeah, definitely. So that was something that I spent quite a bit of time researching. And again, being motorcyclists, it's and being somebody who travels at least once a year, if we can, we're very aware that if nothing else, particularly because we do a lot of travel through Asia, it's very unusual for us to not be on a bike at some point, whether it is a scooter or a full big bike like we did on this trip. So because of that, quite a few years ago, I did an extensive amount of research on um, travel insurance. And 
a lot of them give you really good cover, but they won't actually cover you if you're on a motorcycle. And mm. I was lucky enough to find a policy that does automatically include motorcycle cover. And so I knew that if anything had happened to us, that we had an unlimited amount of medical cover um, so that if we had to unfortunately be uh, admitted into Thailand's hospital system, that we, we knew that we were well covered uh, in terms of local medical treatment, as well as being flown back to Australia to receive local medical. Do you remember the company name? I'm happy to, you know, let people know. Sure. They're, they're called Insure and Go. And um, we usually do either their silver or gold level. One of the entry requirements to Thailand at the moment for anybody coming from any country is that you need to have medical cover for a minimum of 50,000 US dollars, preferably unlimited right. for COVID. So that if you if you contracted COVID while there, that the, the local government knew that you were in, an, in a position to be able to cover your medical expenses during recovery. So that applies not only for COVID, but for anything that could happen while traveling. So Insure and Go offered unlimited medical cover, both for COVID uh, related events and for any other event so for us we felt like that we were well protected there <laughs> I think checking the detail is essential when you get your policy to read through because also there is or was on a policy that I had a section that you had to wear a helmet and in those sort of relaxed countries it's often a case of you know you, you can get a bit blasé or you see everybody else riding around without helmets but you will probably find you're not covered at all if you have any sort of accident, not even sort of complete injury, um, if you're not wearing a helmet. So you really have to read the details. That is exactly right. Funnily enough, though, I mean, I can't speak for other countries, but I can speak for Thailand. I spoke to a couple of locals about this because I found it unusual that as we watched everybody around us on their scooters or their motorbikes the local Thai people rarely had their helmets on as I mentioned that that's an educational piece that, that the Thai government is really trying to focus on but there were often checkpoints tourist police checkpoints set up through particularly the tourist areas like Phuket mm. and if a foreigner rode through there without a helmet on they were pulled over and they were fined and the locals tell me that um, you know a little bit tongue-in-cheek that it's it's a way that the police raise money but mm. um <laughs> there's good and bad in that that's exactly right look I didn't mind it it was never even you know a consideration for us to ride without a helmet on but yeah some tourists do and, and mistakenly think that they're allowed to because they see the locals riding without helmets but it's actually not the case so but you are correct in doing so your insurance policy is often made void so for me it's not a risk that I would want to take we had a recent podcast with George Parkhaber and he did a more off-piste um, journey through through that area. Mm. And talking about the fines thing, he was stopped and, you know, the, the, the officer <laughs> was insistent upon a fine. But he sort of hung out and said, no, no, I don't mind. I'll wait. I'll go to the police station. So if you think they're kind of really asking you for a lot of money for nothing and it's just going to go into back pockets, then um you can sort of just tell them you want to take the official route ask them for a ticket or something and quite often you'll find <laughs> that the fine <laughs> reduces or, or it might just not occur <laughs> just a bit of handy information it disappears <laughs> finally <laughs> that's all right look the, the Thai people 
they're everything that you hear people say about them. They are a beautiful culture. They very, very much appreciate tourism. They love having tourists there because it's the heart and soul often for for many of them in terms of survival so you know through these last few years it's been particularly difficult for them and you know I can just say without hesitation it's an extremely safe place to be and the locals really really take care of the tourists because of that and often I think you'll find even the police if they think that they're issuing those fines and doing <laughs> the right thing if you if you push back a little bit they'll often just give a little smirk yes. and go, okay off you go uh, one thing that they were checking for is is uh, some countries require you to have an international driver's license to be able to drive and ride there in Australia we are a country that automatically allows us to drive and ride there but that's not the case for everybody so I actually found we were pulled over twice and, and they were checking uh, more for license as opposed to helmets. So uh, that's just another thing to, to be aware of, depending on what country you're originating from, you may need to check whether you, you have to apply for an international license. Uh, and that is something that they seem to be quite um, particular about and probably for good reason. Yes, it makes sense. It makes sense. And what about Oh, I was going to actually going to say, you just said, you know, Thailand is safe. I've been there. The people are so friendly and helpful. It gives you a lovely feeling. It's a terrific place in that respect. But you did mention you felt safe. Do you think you would have felt safe doing this trip on your own? Strangely enough, yes. And I didn't think that I would have said that. Um, but again, I, I don't know if it's, different at the moment because Thailand has like the rest of us come through two years of a pandemic and they're, they're desperate to get tourism back up and running again so I don't know if the, the locals were really going the extra mile for us but I really felt like if ever I had issues if I were on my own I, I wouldn't hesitate to turn to the locals for help um, you know even in those more remote regions where English is is rarely spoken by any of the locals. There's maybe a tiny little bit of broken English with the the staff at hotels and so on. You know, we um, one of the first things that we did when we arrived was to put a local SIM card into our phones, which meant that I always had access to data, including using translation apps and things like that. So I think if I got into trouble even without us sharing the same language between using apps and gestures and so on I think I could have always found myself you know in a better position regardless of anything that had happened so yes even as a woman I, I feel I could have done that trip on my own I don't think I would choose to uh, I think it, it's probably safer to always travel with a companion not when your man's treating you to a trip he's, he's going to want to go along so <laughs> yeah I'll take him with me why not <laughs> you'd be under the wing of the hire company presumably you had a phone number you could call if if you had to that is right yes correct if you have a puncture or something I guess you have to go and sort that out locally yeah that's exactly right so you know the the trip overall the loop overall is around 700 kilometers so at various points a very long way from the, the motorcycle hire company so they wouldn't necessarily be able to help you but you're usually not too far from a town and because 
uh, scooters and, and motorcycles are so prevalent there, there's definitely mechanics in every little regional town that we drove through. So at some point there would have always been help to get to, to a mechanic or, or, or the like who could help with a puncture or any other mechanical issues. Right, you'd probably find they're quite sort of inventive at solving problems. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, thankfully, I, I didn't have to experience that, but I would assume so. I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's such a way of life for them to be on two wheels that I'm sure they've got their hacks that they use to get by <laughs> when they need to. So, yeah, I think we would have been okay. You didn't experience any hiccups with the MTs at all, the Yamaha MT motos? Nothing. So, look, this is where I'm grateful for being a researcher. I really enjoy researching things. And I did spend a lot of time looking at the, the bike hire companies in Chiang Mai. Um, I read review after review after review to get sort of the end user's experience of them. And the company that we ended up going with, I, I found that they were everything that various reviewers said that they were and, and that the gentleman who owned that was a local Thai man, but he was an avid motorcycle rider and there was pictures of him on the website doing these trips and, you know, you can just tell a fellow motorcycle rider. He's not a scooter rider. He was, he was into his big bikes and when we met him, you could see that he took a lot of care and pride in the way he took care of his business. Uh, they were very open, very honest, um, and you just needed to look at the bikes. You could just see how great a condition they were in, and just with the choice of bikes that he had, he had an extensive fleet of uh, V-Storms, so a lot of people uh, prefer to do this ride on a, a, a more of a touring style bike. For us, as I said, we we're used to riding sports bikes, so the MTs were perfect, but I could tell he really understood what the the greater majority of people wanted to ride over there and his fleet of V-storms just looked absolutely amazing. Um, and, and you could see he'd taken consideration in choosing the range of bikes that he had on offer. So he really ticked all of the boxes. He had cruisers, he had the the tourers, he had these these MTs. So um, and you, they were just in really great condition. They were very clear in their process. Um, you asked a question before about did we have to leave a passport? And I know that is really concerning mm. for a lot of people because it's not really um, a practice that I guess we would be used to in our own countries. But the answer is yes, we had to leave one of our passports. Some of the big bike organisations will advertise that as a point of difference, that they don't take passports. But in return, you leave a really significant deposit. Um, again, in my reading and research, I just read many, many reviews and blogs and so on of highly experienced um, people saying that the passport leaving is standard practice and it's nothing to be worried about mm. and when we walked into the shop um, I could tell I don't know you just get a feeling TJ don't you they were very professional mm. um, the the lady who who signed us up had proper contracts that we had copies of everything was there front and center so she never at any point took the passport away from us she she would you know fill out the paperwork in front of us she showed us the safe where it was being held right. um, she just really gave us a lot of reassurance that it was normal practice 
and it was okay practice. And we got comfortable with it. The only thing I was worried about is I knew from my experience the week before that when you check into hotels and so on, they need to see your passport. So I thought, oh, if we have to both leave the passport, we've got a problem here. That's where I was going, yes. What about staying over in, on the en route? Yeah, so um, obviously she reassured us that, that one passport was enough. But I did ask the question, I said, what, what if it was just one person? We need passports to check into hotels. And she said to us, hotels will accept a copy of your passport. So for us, one of the best things that we did, there, there's a lot of paperwork needed to travel through Thailand at the moment. Um, we screenshotted every piece of, of paperwork that we needed, whether it was what's called your Thailand pass or um, vaccination certificates or proof of negative COVID tests. Uh, and we also took photos of and kept on our phones images of our passports. And she reassured me that if she had kept both our passports, the hotels would have accepted those images. And there was one hotel where even though we were checking in under my name and we had my passport because it was my partner's passport that was held at the bike shop, um, they did want a passport from both of us and they were very happy to accept the image of my partner's passport. So the lady at the bike shop was correct. The hotels are okay to use the, the copies. That was okay as an image on your phone. You didn't have to have loads of bits of paper. They weren't that. No, they, they were amazing with their technology so every hotel that we checked into at any part of our holiday they just took photos with their ipad of the images on our phones that's useful information yeah they, they made it very easy there was only one document through the whole entire holiday process that we actually had to have in hard copy form and that was immediately before boarding the airline to exit Australia and enter Thailand, we had to have a COVID PCR test and it needed to show a negative result. You weren't even allowed to check in with the airline if you couldn't produce that. And every other document we had said a digital image is okay, but the airline said to us, you do need to have a printed copy of your boarding negative test. And they were correct. So when we arrived in Thailand, that was the one document that they wanted in hard copy. So we were able to thankfully have that printed. I would reiterate, yes, for people traveling in these times, hopefully it will all change. Yes. Just obviously know what the country you're entering requires but also the airline you're traveling on they sometimes have a different requirement and yeah they want a paper definitely look the airline was great in terms of they were very very clear on knowing what was going to be needed at the other end and, and they're almost the gatekeeper so we didn't know that we had to have the PCR test in a hard copy so we went to check in with our airline and she did make it very clear that's the one document we needed to have printed we were lucky in the sense that we we had chosen to have our test conducted at the airport so we could just return to the testing centre and they were able to print it for the copy then and there. And she was absolutely correct. As soon as we walked off that plane, that was the one document that we needed to hand over in hard copy. So listen to the airlines. They're really very, very aware of, of what is necessary and they're great guides at the moment. Well, hopefully that will all change. What was the name of your hire company that you used for the motorcycles then? Because they sound as though they were fantastic. They were awesome, yeah. So they're called C and P Big Bikes in Chiang Mai. So they just have one outlet. Um, there appeared to be three 
companies that that really specialized in as I said they call them the big bikes so C and P was the one that we ultimately chose to go with there's another um, the largest rental in Chiang Mai is called pop big bikes and they have three stores throughout Chiang Mai it's quite a large city and the other one is Mr Mechanic and um Mr. Mechanic seemed to have a lot of cruises. And, and as I said, I, I sort of felt like that might be not the best choice for us with the type of riding that we knew that we were doing. And when I could see on C&P's website that they had, particularly the MTs, that's how we ultimately ended up there after reading their reviews and seeing that they had nothing but great feedback. So very glad we ended up there. It was a really great experience. So in Thailand, the Mai, the Mai Hong Son loop is literally a loop. You do start in, is it Chai Mang, and you end up back in the same place. So that makes things easy. That's right. So we, we did it over four days. We originally thought that we would do it over three days, so two nights and three days. And at the last minute, we decided to extend it out as we sort of really started to look at um, the number of stops that we wanted to make along the way when you're just doing you know the bare basic google mapping of it on the surface each leg maybe appears that it's it's not too extensive riding so so just to give you an example for us on um, day one it was a little under 200 kilometers of riding which for me is a fairly average saturday ride mm. But, you know, and I thought, oh, we'll, we'll be fine doing that each day. But I, I was wrong. It's, it's different riding. It, you slow it right down because there's things to see along the way. As I said, it probably weren't, I, I feel like I probably rode at about 60% of my standard riding, both in, in, in level and pace and so on. Um, in some cases, I had no choice. Did you have to get used to different sort of um, the, the traffic, the drivers? in Thailand I mean it's different in every country you go to so yes and look it's it's this is a little bit of an anomaly in terms of time it's very very quiet in Thailand at the moment compared to how it normally is so you know there was a real upside to that is we didn't experience the traffic that I think in a different time we would um, look the traffic's not too bad because surprisingly there are a lot of opportunities to be able to safely overtake the slower moving traffic this is these are regional areas that are steeped in agriculture so a lot of the produce and so on that the major cities rely on are being grown in these areas on the Mae Hong Song loop and so you do experience a lot of trucks carrying produce and so on that move very slowly but they're moving so slowly that it actually makes them very easy to overtake um, and in particular that was where I was grateful for those days that I was on the 07 there was just that little bit of extra pickup that even if you were overtaking going up a hill you know, it was very, very safe because you were zipping in and out. So traffic in that sense wasn't slowing us down. Um, the hairpin turns definitely were. But as I mentioned earlier, there's just so much to see. And mm. you really need to pare back the riding pace to be able to take it all in. We, we just felt that we found that happy balance of enjoying our riding, but also being able to take in everything around us. Um, it's very hot this time of year, TJ, very, very hot. And you, we really did need to be stopping regularly uh, to have drink breaks in particular. So, you know, that in itself, you don't realise how much time that adds. And the, the scenery is just spectacular. So one of the things that we did was plot along the way stops at um, 
you know, sites that were, were shown to be good sites to take photos. So there's, there's sections along the side of the road where you can very safely pull over and you're at a beautiful viewpoint. So it made it for a great spot to stop and have a drink, but also get a few photos. And, you know, when you do that several times throughout the day, you've, you've added quite a bit of time to your trip. Yes. And the places you stayed, uh, were they pre-booked or you had to find them yourselves? And were they, did you sort of immerse yourself a bit in the local atmosphere? We decided to pre-book just because this was our first time and I really had no idea of um, what these towns would be like in terms of accommodation. Um, again, in a different time, it, it probably would have been uh, a bit stressful not to book because some of the towns don't have a lot of accommodation. The first town in particular that we stayed in was a fairly small town and I think I could only find about six accommodation options. So in a busier time, we may not have been able to get accommodation had we not pre-booked it. Mm. Um, at the moment, we probably could have, but that's not a risk that we wanted to take. Um, and secondly, for us, um, I, I did pre-pandemic a lot of flying in my work. So I've been lucky enough to accumulate quite a few frequent flyer points. So we actually booked our three nights of accommodation using my frequent flyer points. Yes, you can do that in Thailand. But do you think you could just rock up and you think you'd find somewhere? Definitely at the moment you could. There's no question about that. If their tourism reaches uh, full swing again, I, I don't know. I, I think... Um, yeah, particularly, like I said, the first night was in a slightly more remote town. Um, the, the next two nights were in, in slightly larger regional areas, so you probably would be okay. There was quite extensive accommodation to choose in Mei Hong Song town itself, and then also our third night was in uh, a well-known tourist town called Pai, P-A-I, and they're very well set up for tourists with plenty of accommodation. And so long as you weren't particular about your style or level of accommodation, I highly doubt there'd be any concerns with finding last minute accommodation. Mm, that's, I like to do that. I like to just wing it a bit because some days you can get to your, your destination and, you know, your planned destination and think, oh, I could actually go on a bit. You know, I fancy a bit of a longer trip. This has been shorter today than I thought. And other days, of course, you can be. You've had a hiccup and you're a bit exhausted and you can just decide to stop earlier. Funnily enough, I, I, I really took on board the experience of, of others who have ridden this loop. And, you know, if you Google itinerary after itinerary after itinerary, most of the stops are at the same towns. And, and it turns out there's a very good reason for that. And that is the very small towns in between these ones that are chartered as stops they literally don't have any accommodation. It doesn't exist. They're, they're very much local, very regional. They're pretending. Yeah, well, they're just local. They're just, they, they really are not set up for tourists. And so the way this, this loop is plotted, it very much has each leg of the ride getting you to a big enough a town that accommodation even exists in the first place. And it's probably about the right amount of riding through each day. We, we certainly couldn't have done any more or any less on each of the days it was so perfectly plotted oh sounds awesome and that was four days you said a four day riding yeah four days three nights fantastic and highlights or was it also beautiful <laughs> oh, look it really was just just as an overarching motorcycle trip it just every day provided something 
new and, and beautiful to see. Um, but I, I, I do think our third day of riding is, if I had to pick a day, it was my most favourite day. But that was more to do with the stops that we made along the way. So even though each day, you know, when you plot it on Google Maps may only appear to be three up to five hours of straight riding, uh, when you there's so many things that you could choose to do along the way that sometimes it's hard to choose. But the third day, we we went to a couple of caves and um, various locations off the loop that just turned out to be spectacular and quite magical experiences. That uh, there, it's a day that will stick in my mind forever. I think and. I just love that day. It just happened to be that the the three places that we went to on that day were absolutely amazing. And um, yeah, I'll remember them forever. So I'm very glad that we did them. But so because of those, those stops, you know, what appeared to be a three hour day of riding turned out, you know, that we were leaving at 9am in the morning and not arriving to our accommodation that day until 7pm at night, because there's just so much to do along the way. Awesome. Um, and I did also, I had a look at your blog that you put on East Coast Female Riders, and I noticed you mentioned you went on a Motorcycle Masters Q-Ride course, and it seems that was specific, specifically for cornering, mm. which obviously was ideal for the hairpins. So yes, I was, I was just interested to read that because I've done motorcycle courses, but not for cornering. No, I, look, finding, I'm, I'm just blessed that on the Gold Coast in Queensland where I live, that there is a training school run by a, a gentleman, Rob, who is very passionate about teaching riders to corner safely and corner well. Where we live on the Gold Coast, we have beautiful stretches of beaches, but we're enveloped by gorgeous uh, hinterland terrain and so we have some of in my opinion the best motorcycle riding in the world but it's mountainous and um, you know it I feel it takes skill to be able to ride those corners safely um, more so because of the other unknown uh, events that you're dealing with and that is the other road users and in Thailand that was just magnified because it's just doesn't quite operate the same there as it does here it was very much um you know some of the roads were so tight with the cornering that those trucks I spoke about earlier that are moving agriculture around and so on they literally cannot take the corners by staying in their own lane and so they do and so you they were blind corners most of the time and one of the things that, that Rob teaches in his cornering courses is to really prioritise vision and, and you place yourself on the road in a way that, that puts vision front and centre. And um, But secondary to that, it's, it's, you know, when you find that something's occurring on the road that is unexpected, you've got the skills that you've been practising on a closed loop track that he hires to do this training so that it becomes embedded almost in your body on what to do and how to react to those things. So if you're coming around a blind corner and there is a truck literally in your lane, you've got the skills to be able to maneuver around that. I said in the blog, you know, word of a lie, I came around a 45 degree corner, complete blind corner, and there were, were water buffalo walking on the road. I, I think it's, it's not rice uh, season at the moment. And from what I understand, 
when the water buffalo aren't working in the rice paddies, they literally set them free to just graze anywhere because that's what they need to do to keep them sustained through that off season. And so they are just roaming the roads and including the mountains of, you know, between Pai and Chiang Mai. And it was a full family of water buffaloes literally walking up the mountain. So, you know, it was in moments like that, that I was so grateful that I'd had the, the training on, um, how to not overreact to coming up against something like that you know initially when I was doing that training if I think if without the experience I might have come around that corner and the body's reaction is to either break really heavily or sometimes the throttle goes on when you don't want it to but my body just knew not to react okay water buffalo and we just moved you know a little bit more to the side and uh-huh. came around nicely and then tried to stop to get a photo because it was quite an amazing experience but that wasn't possible unfortunately but yeah it was it was I, I, I'd been on this track uh, five times which most people wouldn't get the opportunity to do that but I had um, experienced Rob's cornering course and I loved it so much that in my capacity of leading ECFR rides, a lot of the women, particularly the women new to riding, were asking or they do ask for my my input into their riding just to help them improve. That's part of the reason they joined these rides. And I love helping people. I want to help people, but it just didn't feel right to me that as an untrained individual that I should be offering this type of advice. So I, I went to Rob and I said, can you teach me? Can you coach me um, at least to a level where I become a skilled enough writer that I have the right to perhaps give some input to, to other people? Yeah, it is my sense. goal to eventually, I, I would eventually like to become a motorcycle trainer and um, I guess this is the very beginning parts of being able to do that when the timing is right for me and so he was gracious enough to really invest a lot of time and effort into my coaching and the very very wonderful upside to that was I uh, you know as I said in that blog I dedicated the entire four-day trip to the training that he had put into me because it just made that experience stress-free I just for the first time in my riding career I just felt really in control and safe and I was completely out of my environment and normally I I feel like that would have created stress for me but I Mm. just felt I knew what to do because I'd really really been practicing dialed in the right reactions oh Mm. absolutely it was it was wonderful I just you know and and just even from the physical aspect of it funnily enough this was the first time on a motorcycle that I'd ever done an overnighter. I've never done an overnight motorcycle trip before in my seven years of riding. So I think I threw myself, you know, from the frying pan into the fire going for a three night overnighter. But um, I wasn't even sure how my body would deal with that, uh, being on the bike for so long day after day, carrying luggage as well. But, you know, one of the things that Rob had taught me was to really relax the upper body and, and, um, you know stay supple in the arms and I just found that I was able to spend hours and hours on the bike without getting sore in my neck and my shoulders and so on and I really attribute mm. that to him I think it would have been a different experience because I would have been tense the whole time but no I really felt great which I'm just so grateful for and one other thing I wanted to ask about the road surfaces were they sort of rubbly and horrible or or did you have a nice smooth road surface to ride on 
look, most of the time, I'd, I'd say probably 80% of the time we were on amazing road services. Again, we commented to each other that if this trip was about really wanting to enjoy our motorcycle to the fullest extent, those roads were just set up perfectly for sports bike riding. Um, and the reason for that is Thailand borders Myanmar, particularly up in that north of, of Thailand. And there is some um, political unrest going on over there at the moment yes. uh, where the mil military are in, involved actively on a day-to-day -day basis. And because of that, um, the military has actually paid to have some very, very good roads bordering Myanmar uh, put in place, you know, just in case. Right. And there's a huge benefit to motorcycle riders for that. Having said that, as I said, probably about 80% of the roads are amazing. The 20% that aren't really aren't. <laughs> uh, there is a lot of pothole dodging going on, uh, which I would particularly caution people about riding at night. Two of our, our nights we did end up riding after the sun had set just because we were enjoying ourselves so much in our activities that it extended the riding out. Mm. And thankfully it was only about 30 to 45 minutes of riding in the dark on both of those nights, but it was particularly challenging. It was it's quite difficult to, to see. And uh, I probably didn't have the best visor on my helmet, so it made it a little bit difficult to see. And, and uh, the first night in particular coming into our first stop, it, it was probably the worst stretch of the road. So that was quite difficult to ride on at night. It was very broken up and, um, yeah, just, just challenging. We really had to slow it right down. Um, but that aside, the rest of the time, I was just so impressed with the quality of roads. You may have heard in Australia, we've had extensive flooding in, in my region at the moment and that in itself has broken the roads up. And I think our roads at the moment were worse than what we experienced in Thailand. Wow. There, there is a reason that it's a bucket list loop for many motorcyclists that didn't disappoint. It was absolutely amazing. And I just we just came home from that feeling so invigorated and we just can't stop planning the next one now. We're trying to work out where we'll ride next. It was... Like I said, we've been motorcyclists for quite some time, but this was the first real motorcycle trip that we had embedded into an overall holiday and we do not regret it. It's something that we want to include in our holidays now wherever we can. And yeah, I'd encourage anybody who has the opportunity to get to Thailand to, to take this four days out and do that loop. It was a great experience and not a single regret. You know, some learnings. We've definitely learned a few things that we would do differently next time. But apart from that, it was just absolutely exceptional. Nobody would regret including that into their holiday. That's awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> See you on the road. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you.